Legend has it that it was written by the Dark Ones. Necronomicon Ex Mortis. Roughly translated, Book of the Dead. Did he ever try it out? I don't understand. The book. Did he ever use it to perform some kind of ritual intended to produce a supernatural effect? Are you serious? Look, your books are safe. The ones you read are safe. And that one isn't? Butterfly in the sky I can go twice as high Take a look it's in a book. 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 Crom. in nebraska ah ready in kentucky yes sir five four three two welcome back everybody to the savage Cromcast, season seven episode one grimoires an introduction i'm josh i'm luke die and jonathan and we three have been pouring through ancient tomes gathering our magical ability in order to summon forth into this world a podcast known as The Cromcast. Dun, dun, dun. Welcome back for our seventh season. Boiling cauldrons, alchemical creations, eyes of newts, etc. Smelly tomes. Uh-huh. Dusty things. You know that smell when you open an old book? I do. I love that smell. It's a good smell. You don't get that from your Kindle. You don't. I'm sure that someday they will create some sort of smell sprayer that will generate it for you, though. Probably. Like, I want to read this old book, and I want to <laughs> feel like I'm reading this old book. By Prime Nostril. Prime Nostril. <laughs> yeah, it's the Alexa uh, you put in your nose. Nostril, create old book smell. <laughs> Creating old book smell. <laughs> no, it would, it would mishear you. It would say, creating old garbage smell. <laughs> no. No. So anyway. Welcome, Amazon. Yeah, thanks, Amazon. Uh, so anyway, we're back to talk about grimoires. This is a, a trope that you can find throughout pulps, throughout fantasy, throughout horror, throughout literature itself, and even spilling over into pop culture and religion. And so we're going to talk about grimoires and their influence on all of these various things. But before we do that, tonight we're going to talk about what we're drinking. Hey, John, what you drinking? Hey, um, I got a new one to, to drink. I got Evan Williams Single Barrel. I, I was digging on it that one time I drank it, so I got a bottle of it for the Chromecast. Nice. nice for man. a new season. Going old school. That's correct. With the bourbon. The bourbon. I'm going to pick and up. And you two, are pick you up still with the that. mead or have you left it behind? Well, uh, I brought over the mead because I forgot that we pledged to drink bourbon tonight. But luckily, Luke happens to have 
some Heaven Hill bottled in bond, the six year old stuff. Got it. It's got the age uh, written right on the label. You know it. Uh, it's a hundred proof. And as, it's, it's what we're drinking. That's what we're drinking. Yeah. <laughs> so things might get dicey. And so that's what we're drinking. We've got some different bourbons. We're going to talk about some weird occult books. But before we get into that, let's talk about one thing. You were doing the peanuts dance. I was. Thank you for knowing exactly what I was doing. <laughs> to the one thing song. Do you have a one thing? Is it peanuts related? It is not peanuts related, but I do have a one thing. I recently started watching Kolchak, the Night Stalker. Nice. Holy crap, yeah. man. I found there's a movie store that I go to here in Omaha and uh, the Trade Post. It used to be called CD Trade Post, but they prefer just the Trade Post now. And I found all of them in one container. And I thought, I've always wanted to watch this. It's supposed to have inspired X-Files and all this other stuff. And so I snapped it up. And I really dig it. It's got the dad from A Christmas Story. He's Kolchak, who is a journalist in Chicago. And he wears a pretty dope fedora and Mm -hmm. a seersucker suit. And in the first episode, he is, or first movie, he is a columnist for a, a column called Dear Abby. And he's Abby and answers people's like sad sack mail, but really wants to write hard hitting journalism. And he keeps getting caught up in these occult cases. And the first one, it involves Jack the Ripper. Or is it Jack the Vampire Ripper? And the, all kinds of hijinks ensue. I just, it's, it's really good stuff. I, it's up my alley. Who's his rival reporter that he always uh, dumps on? He calls him Uptight, but his real name is Updike. That's right. He's got a mustache. Yes. Yeah. I like their uh, their interplay with each other. And I, there's like a really Italian paper publisher who's like a, an Italian J. Jonah Jameson sort of. <laughs> well, do, don't they always like dump on Kolchak for following these occult leads? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So you've both seen it. I've seen a few episodes. I saw the Jack the Ripper and the werewolf and... Um, Mm, there's another one that I've seen, but I don't remember. Yeah, I, I've watched some of them too, just uh, in relation to like Nick at Night, and then also streaming and seeking out some of the various like horror anthologies. Like that kind of gets lumped into to those, like to those uh, those clumps of things. Yeah. Monster but, of the week type stuff, right? Like right. That's, like that's the thing. It's not. I mean, it's not necessarily serialized. It's a lot more. You know, you just jump in, jump out. But you know, uh, apart from that monster of the week formula, John, you said it was formative for X Files. Can you see yeah. any other X Files like DNA in there? Uh, uh. There's the disbelief, and then the believer, but. The monster of the week part really is what sticks out to me and sort of this everybody around Scully and Mulder covers it up and everybody around Kolchek ends up covering it up. Yeah. So like the truth never really gets out. But there's lots of things I could see that have come out. He drives a yellow Ford Mustang convertible in Chicago 
and just like squeals up to these crime scenes where a vampire may have killed somebody. It's just, it's pretty cool. I don't know. It, it speaks to me in a lot of ways. <laughs> and, and that actor whose name I can't think of is just wonderful. Darren McGavin. Yeah. Darren McGavin. He's, he's just wonderful. Yeah. But anyway, that's, that's all awesome. I've been digging on. How about <laughs> you, Luke? Oh, this guy. Uh, so I was, I was scrambling because I haven't necessarily been, uh, digesting like anything new here recently. And I was like, man, what did I use as my one things? Like recently I talked about Atlanta and American gods and those are like the two like books and shows that I'm really still jazzing on. So like outside of that, and I've already talked about those, I guess the other thing it's, it's the season like spring is the season. So I've been like like fiddling around in the garden. And I guess that's going to be my one thing is, is like gardens (laughs) today. As of today, my, my zooks and my cukes and my squash, they're all coming up and even a couple pumpkins, your victory garden. My, my victory garden is all coming up, even the seeds, which is exciting because I've never done anything like from seeds, uh, like myself. I mean, I've done it like as a, as a kid. And then also like, as a group, but I've never like done a garden where I've put seeds in the ground. It's to this point, like over the previous years, uh, been containers and like peppers and tomatoes and basil and that kind of thing. Like, uh, so we're at the point where, uh, a raised bed is, is rocking. So I'm, I'm, I'm excited about that. Yeah. You, uh, actually inspired me to do a raised bed as well. Yours is, uh, yours is, yours is going to be awesome, dude. <laughs> it's very small. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's the right size. Like mine is, is a half foot too tall. Cause I did the, the 18 inches instead of just a foot off the ground. And that's the, that's stupid because that means you, that means that you need 50% more dirt, which I didn't necessarily like think about. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, if I was to do it again, I would say do it like a twelve, like a twelve-inch raised bed instead of like an eighteen-inch. Yeah, but I'm still excited. Well, it's it's exciting, and yours looks a lot nicer than mine. So uh, you got that going for you. We might once once it's dark after we're done recording, we'll we'll be a little bit half drunk. We'll we'll slip out with a flashlight and look at and see how our <laughs> look at the plants. <laughs> look at the plants. I'm not <laughs> lying. I've done that. Yeah. Just to see, because the the little dudes that are popping out, like, between the morning and the evening right now, like, to see those little cotyledons just mm-hmm. come on out, it's pretty cool. Yeah, seeing the seed leaves pop up, yeah. like, overnight is is yeah. really something. I got I got a, I got a, a, a big-time excitement factor for my radishes. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. It's true. All right, we're done with we're done with gardens. Okay, <laughs> or maybe we're not. I don't know. Nope. But we're we're gonna pass the pass the baton over to Josh. I also have been doing a raised bed, but that's not my one thing. Um, I watched the first two episodes of a show on Netflix called Altered Car- Carbon, and uh, this is based on a, a novel, a science fiction novel. But the Netflix show is this super slick, uh, very you know, well-produced noir that, you know, I've never read the book. So the, the show is really kind of drawing me in. I don't know what's going to happen. And so, yeah, the, the premise uh, without giving anything away is that you, this is in a far flung future where you can download your consciousness into a, uh, what's basically a USB drive or a ring that, fits in the into the the base of your skull 
and this is called a stack. And as long as your stack isn't damaged, you can, uh, if you're, if your body dies, you can get downloaded into a new body. Like they can put your stack into a brand new body. Now, uh, there's, uh, some economic factors that play into this and really attractive, really good looking bodies are more expensive. And if you're less wealthy, then you, you know, you get what you get. So you might be six years old, but your stat gets put into an 80 year old or well, a 60 year old body. Um, and, and so there's at, in the background, this cool story about economic factors and things playing in. But the main story is this, this guy who's very wealthy is able to not only, only make back, ups of his his uh, stack he can upload them to the cloud so he puts his consciousness into Dropbox every 24 hours or so and it just so happens that his uh, stack is destroyed and he's murdered uh, 15 minutes or so before the scheduled backup right. and so he's able to be downloaded into a new body but he doesn't know who has killed him and this freaks him out and so he hires somebody to figure out who killed him. Like he hires someone to investigate his own murder. And it is just out of this world kind of uh, uh, next level sci-fi. Like I feel like Warren Ellis could have written this. Like there's, there's gotta be some, some overlap of influence there. Uh, And again, I'm only two episodes in, but I messaged you, Luke, the other night and asked you if you had watched it. And I was just sort of drawn in and, and really kind of enamored with the slickness of it. But I got that you weren't really quite as taken by it. Yeah, uh, I watched about uh, half of the first episode. And uh, some of the acting and some of the some of the script, I guess, turned me off a little bit. But I definitely like the slick appearance and the overall, like, focus of the story I liked. I basically I got to the point uh there's a there's a point where uh oh what's the guy's name? Taka Takaishi uh Coates like who's the who's the good guy? Who's who's your oh, protagonist? Uh uh Kovach. Ko- oh Kovach, yeah. So he he ends up in the, the flop house motel and you know he's able to like use the, the systems of the hotel. Right. Like that's where that's where we stopped watching it. Uh but it's it's slick and it has lots of big ideas and so i like I, you know i need to give that and also like the expanse uh equal time because i know they're they're a lot of big fun but also a lot of big ideas all sort of wrapped up and it yeah. seems like you like from the two episodes you got into it, it yeah. there's a lot of good content there i'm grooving on it uh, i like it a lot uh i like it more than ashley does i think um she she likes the the background and the ideas, but does not like how graphic and bloody it is. Right. Um. And and it is it it is uh, a Netflix show, and it is filmed like a premium uh, cable channel show. Right. So you know you can expect some some big value, some big ticket value here. Yeah. Um. Some of the backgrounds look a little too slick and maybe kind of blur that line between, uh, hey, this looks like a real future and, hey, this looks like Uncanny Valley. Yeah, I agree. Um, That's the, I picked up on that just with the, the, the front half of the episode that I saw. Yeah, there's a lot going on in the backgrounds. Right. 
and it's it's difficult to focus in on anything. And I think that is uh, what the show wants to be. Like it it wants to sort of be this big, loud, big budget kind of uh, 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 answer to to folks who want more, um, you know, hard science fiction concepts, but also some big dumb action mixed in there, like right. a like a Reese's cup almost. So. Uh, yeah, I highly recommend it. I, I've only watched the two episodes, but thus far, it, it really has thrilled me. John, have you watched any Altered Carbon yet? Negative. I haven't seen that one. I've seen it listed on there, but I haven't watched it. Yeah, it's one of Netflix's newer uh, uh, serialized TV show efforts. Um, I believe it came out at the tail end of 2017 or really, really early 2018. Um, good stuff. Yeah, so check out Altered Carbon on Netflix and uh, let us know what you think. And that's three things that we write down into our moldering tome. We say their names one time each. That's three times total. And we call it One Thing. We do call it that. We call it that all the time. Every episode. You can't say it three times, dude. One thing, one thing, one thing. One Thing. Now she's going to come. The witch? Whoa. Yep, through the mirror. There's no mirror in here. Only a black mirror. Black mirror. mirror. Speaking (laughs) of Netflix shows. I need to get caught up on that. I've still only watched the the pig episode in San Junipero. Oh, God. Oh, God. I want to watch that Star Trek episode. Oh, yeah. Have you watched it? Uh, I haven't watched the Star Trek one. I think Kara and I, we can only do about two of those a year. (laughs) Before uh, <laughs> we need medication, we we have been interspersing things with uh, comedians in cars getting coffee. Nice, which is on Netflix. Have you watched any of it? No, we've it's... been watching the Joel McHale show with Joel McHale. Oh, I want to watch that too. This yeah. is Jerry Seinfeld driving various like muscle cars or hot rods or whatever, and mm. uh, picking up another comedian and going out to coffee with them and interviewing them right in a very kind of free form nothing specific kind of way like a jerry seinfeld kind of way right um and it's very good they're they're only about 15 minute episodes and i'll have to check that yeah they're bite-sized candy um watch watch the jim carrey one and then i think it's the very first one in fact and then watch the barack obama one And the Lewis Black one is pretty good too. It's mostly Lewis oh. just like cursing. Is he? <laughs> <laughs> nice. Uh, he's funny. Like Seinfeld makes him laugh a lot. Um, and then in the uh, the scenes like between like Seinfeld picks up whoever he's going to interview, and then they drive and get coffee, and then they drive somewhere else. And in those driving scenes, uh, Lewis is just cursing at other drivers and being angry. It's pretty funny. That would be my favorite part. Okay, bring us in. But we're not talking about Lewis Black. (laughs) I'll bring us in with that. We're not talking about Lewis Black tonight. Right, John? No, we are not, sir. Although, if he read the audio version of a a grimoire, it would be fairly interesting. I would go with Gilbert Godfrey. Yeah. Well, they could alternate chapters. Welcome to the Necronomicon. (laughs) Necronomicon. We're talking about grimoires tonight, and before we dig into the pulp 
influences um, and the, the pulp examples of grimoires, we need to talk about what a grimoire is, how we decided on this as a topic for a season, uh, what grimoires mean to us, that sort of thing. So this episode is going to be a very sort of freewheeling exploration of the grimoire itself. Occultism 101. Sort of. It's it's almost as if we're going to be like coming up with an idea and then passing it off to one of our buddies and then one of them will pass it off to somebody else and then next thing you know, the batons pass back to you. Yeah, it's a conversation. It's it's kind of like the way these books are used. That's true. In the stories. Passed down from user to user, from person to person, from fellow to fellow, to some nefarious end. If we wanted to start with what a grimoire, <laughs> this like definition that they put on the Wikipedia of them is, it is a textbook of magic, typically including instructions on how to create magical objects like talismans and amulets, how to perform magical spells, charms, and divination, and how to summon or invoke supernatural entities such as angels, spirits, and demons. And that's how we got Luke on the show, was when we read through... One of our grimoires. That's true. And got him stuck on this plane of existence. It was uh, uh, Better Homes and Gardens. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So we were talking before we got started recording, and we decided upon a colloquial definition of grimoires, and that is a magical book that contains instructions for the various things that the Wikipedia article describes, but the object actually has some sort of property that makes it magical as well. Mm-hmm. And it's rare. Right. Yeah. It's not it's an probably easy, probably the only one in existence. Maybe, or, or maybe only six copies were translated. Right. Or, or something. It, there's some aspect of it that makes it rare. And I think that those are important things to point out because there are books about magic out there that aren't necessarily instruction guides on how to perform some of these more arcane things. And I think we all have some of those sitting on our shelves. Right. But there are also books on how to do magic that are mass produced that you could get on Amazon right now, which sort of takes away for me the aspect of them that would be a grimoire. And so... I think that those are things that we need to point out when we're talking about what kind of books we're discussing. But the, there are also books that we assign these talismanic values to, right? Like, sure. like the Bible, like using the Bible as an object to, to swear in politicians, right? Sort of, sort of imbues it or, or we imbue it with this sort of, uh, magical power. Well, even further, I mean, a Bible would be used in an exorcism and it would, be able to cast out demons like it would hurt something to hold if because it's a holy object right since it's the word of god so yeah that does count as well yeah and so um the wikipedia article goes on to say while all books on magic could be thought of as grimoires not all magical books should be thought of as grimoires that's a good point so we're talking about a very specific subset and uh i think as we move forward in this conversation, our definition may broaden somewhat. Um, and so we might talk about why we think each of these examples are grimoires. Um, 
but let's let's move into some of the uh, well let's let's talk about why this topic is fascinating for us before we move into the specifics. Well, why did you come up with it as one of our options for our season seven, Josh? Well, I, the so grimoires serve as a uh, a major trope in a lot of the pulp stories that we've been discussing. You know, we've talked about Howard and uh, one of the the grimoires that we've actually mentioned at least in passing on the show is the book of Skelos. We've talked about Lovecraft who sort of got the whole show started with his fictional grimoire, the Necronomicon. And so it made sense as a trope, uh, you know, that, well, let me, let me back up. It made sense that we should explore this trope because it seems so central to the, the weird tales family of, horror and, and fantasy and science fiction. Um, but you guys supported it. So why did you, why did you <laughs> think that this was uh, a good um, idea for the next season? I guess I'm, I'm jazzed to get into this topic because this is an opportunity to read a butt ton of authors. I mean, we've, we've had a couple other seasons where we've read more than just like one other author. Uh, and this is another season like that. So I'm excited to be able to read Howard and Lovecraft and Clark Ashton Smith alongside a variety of other people uh, that are all sort of like playing in the same sandbox. Yeah. So that's that's an attraction to me. For me, part of the attraction is I, I think of myself as a bibliophile. I like to collect books. I think you guys had teased my wife and I before about going to half price books every other weekend when we lived <laughs> in Lexington, Kentucky. And we have a library in our house, like multiple bookcases stacked in a room. And, uh, I just, I've always loved the power of books. I've always thought that books are a fascinating object that we came up with as a species. I think there are some internet memes about it's a bunch of dead trees pasted together that create images in your brain with squiggles that we assign value to. So it's a very magical object, even just in the basic sense, a book is a magical object. But then we have this subset of books that we talk about as real things, quote unquote, real things, and as fictional things, as a trope that in of themselves have magic in them and are magical. So to me, it's just this really cool subset of books that there are these books out there that may imbue you with some sort of mystical power and they're secret and hidden and there's only a few of them and they've been passed down through the ages, but you never know when you may find one in your local used bookstore. Yeah, I like that uh I like the uh the the onion layers, the the you know, a book about a book or a story about another story. That's that's one of the things that really resonates with me. Uh, for these various grimoires is how they are like the MacGuffins or the drivers of the mechanics of a plot. And that you don't even have to know what the hell the thing is about. Like if you are a clever enough, a clever enough author to come up just with like the broad, broad strokes details to sort of drop one in at the right place. It just says so much with so little about the world that it, it just creates this air of mystery. And so I like that. And I like the idea 
then in very like grounded terms, you can have the the seeking of like a single item, like a true MacGuffin, as like the driver of a of a story too. So, in terms of like, uh, like a D and D campaign, I mean, <laughs> uh, a grimoire is a perfect is a perfect fetch quest. Yeah. Uh, but in terms of like a short story, it also serves as that or like some statement on like this is the way that that the world truly is right as far as that's the part that i i do find fascinating is i mean you guys probably remember before the internet was widespread when you wrote reports at school you had to put down your books as sources Mm -hmm. and there was this authority behind books like people trust books if it's in a book it must be real it must have happened it must be the truth and if there's a grimoire about magic or about ancient Atlantis or about the secret history of of some race, then it gives it this air of authority that creates – I don't always like conspiracy theories and everything, but it does create that sort of culture. The idea that this book is real and it has the truth and the reason we don't know the truth is because not everybody has read it and it's hidden and it's tucked away in the Vatican archives or whatever. It the book part of it lends an error of authority to magic used to be real or these places used to be real because it's in a book. Yeah. It leads, it lends some credence to, uh, these notions for sure. I was actually thinking about it from, from a slightly different angle that, um, these books contain knowledge and maybe you can trust them, but maybe you know, maybe it's just too much. Maybe these academics uh, are making things up, or maybe these uh, theologians are are taking things a bit too far. And uh, maybe it's better if you don't get into the the whole book learning thing, right? Like uh, <laughs> that way can lead to to danger itself, right? You're tampering with forces beyond our kin. Yeah. Because the book itself has power. It's maybe trying to unleash itself on the world through you as its human vessel. Yeah. So so maybe maybe those academics up in the tower are not to be trusted. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. I like the idea of forbidden knowledge and that there's the the layer of like reality underneath like what we see is this facade, right? And so that's the classic like call a cthulhu opening which is you know very much what we're going to be getting into here in terms of grimoires uh but beyond that like uh i guess i'm thinking of maybe was it our last uh chromtober that we talked about like the damned thing and there's this story of like what happened and what this man saw and and how he met his end and you know, a reporter knew or suspected the whole deal, but it gets sort of covered up. And I guess to bring this around to like the X Files and Kolchak, <laughs> like <laughs> like with the one thing, it fits in like that sort of archetype of there's a handful of people that truly know how things are working out, and everybody else is you know you're just a you're just a sheeple, right? You're just wandering around. <laughs> like I like that perspective on the way that the the physical world is functioning. Yeah. It's it's like a, a Morpheus like from the Matrix right. sort of uh what is real and and what can you trust and right. 
Yeah. Well, I, I, I was hoping we could touch on that just slightly that it's a bit anachronistic, I think, for us to enjoy these things. We've professed on the show before that we are scientists. And yet, as scientists, we enjoy reading these things or reading about these things. Mm-hmm. And, and I've always wondered why that is because I don't – when I say I like this stuff or I enjoy reading about it and learning about it, it's not that I believe that the sixth and seventh book of Moses really are going to tell me arcane secrets about how to turn my staff into a snake. But I, I find it so interesting that it's a part of culture and that people could read it and believe it. And I was wondering why you think we enjoy it. Like the three of us should look down on this maybe. Man, I don't, don't, I don't know. I've been thinking similarly, like (laughs) to bring it back to, to like my one thing of the garden, like to think I I love like the, the herbology, like the, the random sort of like little bits of notes that you can get from like a specific plant. Oh, Oh, it treats this and this and this. And it's useful for these, specific characters i like the notions of homeopathic uh types of like like deep dark you know like like ancestral knowledge i know it's hogwash in a lot of cases and i know a lot of it is pseudoscience but it's it's interesting to me in a cultural sort of bent and uh i like the idea that there could be some level of of uh, truth that's sort of boiled down within any sort of kernel. Like, whether or not there's a Loch Ness monster, is there really something funky that's going on at Loch Ness? Like, that's that's what I want to know. Yeah. <laughs> like, is there just some, some funky-ass fish that's flopping around that makes people see, you know, <laughs> Nessie? Right. Like, that's... that's, that's I, I, like, I love that I want to believe. Like, I love that molder sort of attitude. Yeah, I I like the notion that you know there is so so I definitely buy into science and and that there is a, a scientific authority and that there is a, a scientific process and and bit by bit and and contribution by contribution we learn more about ecosystems or we learn more about human health and we learn more about interactions between various species on the planet. But I also like the the democratizing factor of knowing that, you know, Jimson weed has some sort of of property that neutralizes poison ivy. Right. And that is not a a quote I'm making air quote scientific fact. It's 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 folklore. Right. But it there seems to be some nugget of truth there yeah. and 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 it sort of levels this playing field between folks who practice science and folks who who practice more uh you know homeopathy or or, or folk medicine or yeah. whatever right i have a couple of things to spin off of that i guess one is have you talked about your mom on the show before uh i think i have okay so your your mom is a folklorist is that accurate N- not really but Oh, she she collects tales. I thought that's right. Like yeah. So them. mom is a storyteller for sure, and she right. collects uh, uh, stories to tell. Yes. Yeah. So is do you think that that plays into your your love of some of this kind of stuff? Is that you believe in the power of the story? I think so. And, uh, not not just mom. Like my my whole family, 
you could you could look at them and say, well, there there there's a a huge storytelling tradition in in my family, <laughs> and um, but more than that, like my grandma on my mom's side knew various properties of of plants and what you use them for, you know. Um, to go back to Luke's gardening one thing like they planted by the signs quote quote right right and you you know when certain trees begin to bud you plant this uh plant in your garden and and so forth and so on and and you you look at the stars and you you use uh astronomy and to to some extent astrology to help you in scheduling when you plant your garden and my family did that uh but they they're all you know strongly you know, uh, Baptist like Christians, but they also kind of rely on this, uh, almost paganistic method of planting their gardens. Yeah. I think it's interesting. I mean, the way that, you know, we can talk about it and the way that we do talk about it, like in class is that, you know, there's these things, things may superficially seem like, stupid statements like oh this is this is not rocket science this is just simple deductive reasoning but it's the if e if a equals b and b equals c then a equals c types of steps of logic that makes science beautiful and 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 just simple like reasoning beautiful to sort of see like here's how you can elegantly see how the the puzzle fits together because you don't necessarily first C that A equals C. Uh, that's my attraction to uh, f- folkloric and uh, like ancestral types of knowledge. Mm-hmm. The fact that people can just sort of know through long periods of time that when you plant, <laughs> when you plant your your damned garden before Derby Day, there's a good chance that it's good. <laughs> <laughs> there's going to be a frost, and if you that's if you such wait, a Kentucky uh, bit of folklore, and, and it's something that this Joker, like I'm like, man, I want to put on my garden, so I did it like a few weeks before, and I've like weathered a couple different frosts where I've had to put sheets on the plants. That's silly and stupid, and if I would have just like abided by simple <laughs> folkloric practices, my ass would be covered. I like that. That's that's part of the attraction, and I think that's I think that's tying into this like what constitutes some like not necessarily forbidden lore but just like not necessarily equally accessible lore across the the, across the page it's not mainstream yeah and so and so following up like the thing that i really like about these stories is that you can have like hidden like like actual lost bits of truth, right? So you have something that might have been common knowledge or might have been too accessible to a variety of people. And by either happenstance or the need of like some big crummer cover up like it's some sort of like governmental like <laughs> efforts that that the world doesn't know how things really are. Uh, and there are there is some kernel of truth that if you were to see it, all these broad vistas of of, of the world would sort of like lead you insane, you know, in a Lovecraftian cosmic horror sort of sense. So I like that component that there's 
not necessarily, I guess, secreted away bits of lore is part of it, but also just like hidden bits of lore that are the drivers of adventure in and of themselves. Like you're seekers of truth, the same way that you might be a seeker of science, you can be a seeker of a, a of an of a of a, a damned like grimoire, and still be seeking like the truth. Right? Yeah, right. I, so you've gotten that. The second thing I kind of wanted to ask is if if you think grimoires in the past were scientific and that it is sort of a foundational piece of science and science literature to have a tome of stuff that you figured out and are trying to teach people about. Like a grimoire is almost a scientific journal that you're publishing in and that you're providing the the secrets of the universe in. Yeah. Is that perhaps part of it? I think that's I think that's true. Or another way to think about it might be a cookbook. So there's there's almost like a scientific method to the way that you might would want to like summon a demon. It's I mean it's more cookbooky, but it seems like I mean this is this is straying into the realm of like pop culture, but if you if you if you read the spell right, if you draw a circle around you and salt and if you do x y and z you can you can talk to the devil, mm-hmm. right? Like that's what comes across in a lot of these grimoires, right? Like they are, they're greater levels of knowledge, but they are very much grounded in. Uh, you can't just like feel it out. You got to do this and this and this. They're very clear statements. You're right. Yeah, there 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 tend to be descriptions of these very specific times and order of operations that you can't short circuit. It's not just <laughs> chaos. You, you, you know, there's an order to it. And I, and I think back even to like the, uh, the Fawford and Mouser story that we read in the last season where, you know, they're waiting for the stars to align and, and, and star like, like, uh, is that in the bar- bazaar of the bazaar where yeah. like constellations need to touch the eaves of the roofs in the uh like in the in the neighborhood where they're at mm-hmm. like that's almost that's not that's not something that's felt that is a measurable like action like things don't work until the stars are right yeah you draw the symbol you use the virgin blood you use the salt you use the ingredients, you chant the right incantations in the right order for the right duration of time, and perhaps the the spell might activate. Yeah, and uh, as we're talking about this, I mean, even thinking about... This isn't spoiling anything. This is, like, just making some random reference. Like, the uh, the access to the, 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 the minds of... Uh, Moria and like Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. Like the only way they're able to get into that is because Gandalf knows that hey, you say Melon and that means friend, and it happens to be like the light of the full moon shining on the side of the mountain, and psh, everything opens up. There's some level of predictive power that's at play here, and and uh, again that cookbook nature, which is what distinguishes a grimoire versus like like a book of verse, like. Like Song of Psalms or or the uh, or I'm sorry Song of Solomon or like Book of Psalms like those aren't grimoires, uh, but like the like the Leviticus and Deuteronomy, bleh, damn <laughs> Deuteronomy, 
those are clearly grimoire-esque books of the Bible because they're like instructions like, hey, go and slaughter X number of cattle and do X, Y, and Z and you'll get, you know, some level of penance. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not the same thing that you see within like a, 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 a book of flowery poetry. Right. I'm sort of meandering here. No, I mean, no, do I, you guys get what I'm saying? Yeah, there, there's there, there are certain procedural elements that are listed within a grimoire that separate it from any other type of book. It's it's a magic book, but it also itself is magical. I've often thought about certain scientific books in the context of grimoires, and I think it doesn't they they don't really fit the definition we have outlined, but. Uh, what about On the Origin of Species by Charles Darwin? Uh, it's describing a, a sort of poorly understood, almost semi-mystical concept of the origin of of our of the species. Right. Like, well, uh, the and, diversity and, of the life on, uh, that we find on the planet. Yeah, I, I, I would buy into that as a scientific grimoire. Uh, it, it contains this knowledge that is counter- and I guess this is a theme that that will that I'll bring up a lot throughout this season. It's it's like the counterculture knowledge. Like prior to the publication of On the Origin of Species, the the prevailing notion was that hey, God created everything and it it has been as it is now and it's immutable and it's unchangeable. And Darwin comes along and he makes these observations and he writes them up in this very complex yet very elegant book and publishes it. And, you know, he outlines a good chunk of the mechanism behind, you know, where all of this diversity on, on Earth comes from. And to me, On the Origin of Species seems like a scientific grimoire in the same way that... Uh, uh, Newton's uh, uh, what is it, Principe Mathematica, is is a mathematical grimoire. Right. Um, the these are things that change the way in which we see reality, or change the way in which we see the world. Um, yeah. So I've always thought about these cornerstone books in science, uh, in a way, as grimoires themselves. Well, I could even expand it to non-cornerstone things like Maria Silvia Marion's book, uh, Metamorphosis Insectorum Surinamseum, where she describes uh, caterpillars becoming pupa and becoming moths or butterflies, which uh, before that, before she drew it and observed it, was unknown. So in like 1705, she was describing this metamorphosis that previously people thought that there were caterpillars and that moths just sprung forth spontaneously from the soil on their own, like they were devil spawn. <laughs> and she is challenging that view with this scientific view and illustrations of what's actually going on. And she makes this compendium that she publishes. So I could see that even grimoire-esque kind of aspect to that, yeah. Yeah. I'm thinking about... There's a there's a book that that at least Josh and I talked about in grad school and maybe John you did too. It's the uh, the structure of scientific revolutions. Yeah, by mm-hmm. by Thomas Coons. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like like in those in any of those cases you have like the like the 
that sort of framework is there's a paradigm for the way the world works, and then there's the restructuring of science around a new paradigm, right? These grimoires are the uh, the sort of like paradigm breakers, right? I think absolutely. That, I think that there's there's something in the connections between cosmic horror and like paradigm shifts that that relate to these these texts that you can have like a grimoire by any definition of the stories that we're going to read and we'll do the rundown here in a in a few short minutes uh they are all texts that are referred to as sort of like altering our understanding of the way that the world should work uh and because of that, they would, like, in the face of science, restructure our understanding of things. Yeah. But, like, in a, I don't know, like, in a spiritual sense, they're just, like, they're that forbidden knowledge. Yeah. So, you, if you thought about On the Origin of Species in the context of the Necronomicon, it, it really is this uh, sort of real-life history of the way nature works counter to what would have been popular knowledge provided by the Bible. Right. So in that way, in my mind, it, it functions as a grimoire. And it, and it's an elegant explanation, right? Like it's, yeah. it's, it's Occam's razor. Like there are those elements of simplicity. And that I guess that gets back to the, uh, the sort of like folkloric connections we were talking about earlier, like why maybe this is attractive to us. Like as scientists, we're not necessarily attracted to the non evidential explanations <laughs> of things, mm -hmm. but we are attracted to the basic inferential explanations of things. Sure. I don't know if that makes sense. The process. Like, yeah, yeah, like like <laughs> 2 and 2 equals 4. It doesn't matter how you get there. So long as you arrive at 2 and 2 equals 4, like correlation and uh, uh, regression aren't the same thing. But if you understand that you get to that point, you're good. Like like you can you can understand how to plant your garden. You can understand how to summon the demon. Like <laughs> there's simple <laughs> rules, just do it. Just do these things and you'll you'll get to that that endpoint that is a step further in terms of our in, like enlightenment. Yeah. I think you're hitting at what the big thing is is that we pursue enlightenment. We pursue answers and grimoires, even though we probably do not agree with their assessment of the world and the universe at large, it is a attempt at explaining phenomenon around you and harnessing your knowledge to progress your species forward. So we know we don't think that they're true, but it's still it's exploration. It's, it's the seeking of knowledge in the darkness, even though we now look at this as the darkness. Yeah. Yeah. So what are some of our favorite grimoires? Ooh, that's a good question. We have so, a, a book, uh, a list of seven. We, well, we have some fictional ones and non-fictional ones. And let's, let's just, 
have a freewheeling sort of uh, conversation about the grimoires that we're attracted to first. And then toward the tail end of the episode, before we close out, let's talk about the ones that we want to discuss in in sequence for this season. Okay. The grimoire of grimoires. The grimoire of grimoires, yeah. The the <laughs> creme de la creme. So <laughs> the short stack of the what we're gonna be reading. Yep. The syllabus. So John, what's a grimoire that uh sort of uh stands out in your mind as being indicative or, or uh sort of a, a good example of a grimoire. Okay. This is this is going to be tough for me. I'm going to pick one of the ones I read about today, though. Okay. It's called Picatrix, and it's an early version of a grimoire. It's a book of Arabian magic, and it's the largest grimoire, quote-unquote, in history. So it's one of the longer volumes of grimoires that we know of, or of, of things that we label as a grimoire. And it may be authored by a man whose name is Ahmad al-Madriti, and it was transcribed into Latin in 1256. So it predates that year. Uh, it's part of their culture before that. So it's an old, old book, it seems. It has spells in it on how to, quote, destroy a city with the ray of silence. I'm into that. I would try that out. <laughs> All right. Um, there's also spells on how to, quote, influence men from a distance. So I guess spells of persuasion or maybe in a modern sense how to make friends in seven easy steps that kind of self-help and influence people (laughs) how to influence people yes yeah uh it was focused on astral deities It, it is transcribed or it ascribed a lot of importance to astrology and astral deities and according to one source that i was reading today it was heavily influenced by a group known as the Haranian Sabians, who apparently were very influential in the foundation of astrology or astrological deities in Eastern mythology and Eastern science. Hmm. So to me, it seems it, I, I picked it just now because it's a little out of left field for our Western thought, perhaps. But it seems like an important grimoire as it's the largest and Certainly a very old one if it predates 1256. Where did you come across that? Like, is this something that you read about <laughs> when you uh, when you were a kid? Or was this something that you just found out in <clears throat> in researching for this topic? This is, this is one from just my recent research. Because we were doing this season, I was looking up articles and things on grimoires. Mm-hmm. And there are several interesting articles out there about it on websites like sacredtexts.com. Or a list of grimoires at grimoire.org. There was one that I went through that was from The Guardian. And it was about the top, what is it, top nine, top ten grimoires (laughs) by Owen Davis, who is quoted, Davies, is quoted in the Wikipedia article. So he seems to be somewhat of an authority on the topic. Yeah, he wrote a book uh, about it, about grimoires. Yeah, he and he wrote about several different ones, and I kind of from there leafed out into just linking the different things on the internet, and one of them led me to this article that mentioned the Picatrix, and Picatrix. Maybe that's how you're supposed to say it. It's not a Pokemon. Yeah, I like Picatrix. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a Pokemon. Um, but then I read about it more at a website called 
renaissanceastrology.com. Okay. And it says, <laughs> it's the Patrick's of Geat al-Hikam, the premier grimoire of astrological magic. Premier. And there's a, there's a quote from the book that says, this art is called magic. It is not easy to understand, and it is hidden from the simple-minded. Magic is a divine power affecting by original causes. Hmm. It also, there's multiple things that point out that it has things about creating sugary confections that are composed of blood, brains, and urine. But I didn't find that as interesting as... I have all of those. I was going to say my pantry is low on several of those ingredients. (laughs) But my body is full. My body is full. (laughs) Dude, you are a a resource of, like, heavenly inspiration. (laughs) But maybe we can. Link to that. <laughs> That's not a come on. <laughs> I feel uh, I feel uh, more valued than I did a moment ago. I treasure our friendship. <laughs> Apparently, there's. I'm going to always use that quote. If, if a scorpion, it's a good one. Like <laughs> Sorry, a John. Go again. <laughs> Say that again. Oh, there's there's an artist rendering in it of two people taming a man-sized scorpion. Okay. So I, that seems cool to me. That does seem cool. <laughs> How about uh, you, Luke? Do you have a grimoire that you have been fascinated by previously in life? This dude? Yeah, this dude, that two, dude. That one. <laughs> who's got two thumbs and has read the Necronomicon? <laughs> this, this dude. dude. <laughs> no, you sure I guess... they're thumbs and not tentacles? I like the ne- Necronomicon. I mean... You know, in the, I mean, this is generic, and it's it's such a uh, easy, easy, easy explanation. But like that is the quintessential like pop culture Necronomicon, and it's the one that you encounter within like our readings. So uh, that's uh, that's the book that I think is most influential. To me, just just generally speaking, like how many times has the Book of the Dead come up within like uh, everyday sort of like encounters as a teenager? That one, and and what's the one that sort of blurs the boundary between fake and real? It's that one, right? Like this yeah. is the Blair Witch of like of these grimoires within at least like contemporary like civilization yeah i agree uh the necronomicon is the ur grimoire it it is everything that you well it encapsulates everything you would expect a prototypical grimoire to encapsulate so yeah can i talk about a couple more real ones quote-unquote real ones no yeah i was gonna say the no one of them that, that really kind of captured my imagination was the Egyptian Book of the Dead, which is evidently, you know, a, a translation of a bunch of hieroglyphics that deal with funerary procedures within ancient Egyptian cultures from the lower kingdom through the middle and upper kingdoms. And, you know, not, not only uh, mythology in terms of like what gods ferry the souls across to the land of the dead, but also what you need to do to construct, you know, a proper mummy. 
uh, how to get the brains out, how to get the brains out, how to store the brains, how much honey you need per ounce of brain, like that, <laughs> that sort of thing. Um, that's something that, that is an interesting point. I wonder if like a modern mortician's textbook could be a grimoire in the future because it would probably have stuff in there about how to console the grieving and all kinds of weirdness. Yeah, and and what uh, Bible passages to read them in the same right. way that the Egyptian Book of the Dead might have, you know, some sort of incantation to uh, invoke Ra to beg for his right. blessing to, you know, uh, directions that include what types of um, possessions to to entomb the the recently departed. Yeah, with. like how those, to dig those sorts what of things. To put inside them. Yeah, yeah. Honey, mostly. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're thinking of your mead. Oh, yeah, I'm thinking I think of the you're mead. You're hung dude. up on the mead, dude. That's right. But I think honey was in, uh, a, a sort of oh, a key right, ingredient right. in Egyptian funeral practices. It's an antibiotic, right? That's right. Yeah. Use it for lots of things. You like can't get botulism from sweetening your tea, making mead, and making a mummy. It's a cure all. It's a cure all. Do it all. <laughs> it's it's like it's like a gypsum weed. Wait, I don't know. Yep, like gypsum weed. Gypsum weed or like a milfoil, like any of that. You just use it and then it'll fix it. Ginseng. Hi, Doctor McGilligutty's funeral weed right. or funeral honey. It's used for sweetening <laughs> your tea, dude. We should Make put an alcoholic beverage. We should put together a uh, grimoire for the season, like all the random folklore <laughs> that we know in our heads. Like, let's research it and put it together in a PDF. The book We're of the Chromecast. It'll let's make fake lore. Fake lore. So yeah. we have some some examples of real life and and blurring the lines uh, grimoires. Oh, yeah. I got a couple of good ones. So let, lay it on us, John. What are some good ones? Okay. These ones kind of blur the line. And uh, one of them is called Aurea Linda or Linda. And it may be better known by its modern name as Himmler's Bible. So let's talk about Nazis, right? I mean, come on. <laughs> uh, <laughs> they were all into the occult, so it makes sense. So. I, I've always found that fascinating, this idea that Nazis were, quote-unquote, really into the occult, which I first got fascinated by because of Hellboy, where Rasputin shows up and is helping them some, summon some sky demons, right? Right. So this idea that they love this sort of stuff, it seems to have some basis in fact. The Oira Linda is supposed to be a book that tells a story from around 2194 BCE. And it was first discovered, though, in the 1860s, which is quite some time later, I would argue. It's also known as the Nordic Bible or Himmler's Bible. And it's written in Old Frisian, which is a language uh, area around like modern Netherlands and places like that. Um so in these Frisians had migrated in this story that's told in this book from Atlantis after the deluge that occurs in Atlantis, they leave. They also all happen to be white Aryan type folk and they come to that portion of Europe that is the Dutch, the German, that kind of place. And they found 
big time civilizations and they're like the mod they're the the precursors to all of our modern civilizations so therefore they're the ur race aryans are what would they call it josh the ubermensch the ubermensch the master race the original folks so himmler heinrich himmler apparently really was quite taken with this book and really believed in it and there was a really cool article i read that was about occultism and archaeology and how those two things often get blurred together and where people can use governmental influence to impose their occultism onto archaeology and onto science and it was about how Himmler and some of his associates had sort of been laughed out of an academic reading of this book Hmm. at one point that was supposed to discuss its validity and then he sort of decided that the only way to get people to believe it was to use the government. And that was how he sort of got involved in creating government-sanctioned archaeology projects that supported the idea of the Aryans as the master race. Really? Right. So that, to me, is fascinating on multiple levels. One, it's this book that clearly was written by some dude in the 1860s, and he's like, yeah, it's from 2100 BCE, and uh, it's about, you know... Uh, the Atlanteans and that to me is fascinating that somebody at some point could just be like, yep, uh, I wrote this down and I, or I found this and it's real. You should all totally believe me. And that people would then debate the validity of this and actually have decades worth of conversation about this fake book that is full of anachronisms and, and how it could be real or how it couldn't be real. And then how the power of belief can drive people to, impose their beliefs on others yeah. that that it becomes because it's now part of modern quote-unquote modern atlantis research and modern neo-nazi sort of lore this book is still sort of circulated in those kinds of circles about how the aryans are the real master race and so i don't know how deep we want to go into that <laughs> but uh to me that's that's amazing that you could make this fake thing and then it turns into a real thing for hundreds, maybe even thousands of people because just the right person believed it. Right. Right. That's weird to me that the power of the written word in that case, I think and I that, can see from fraught looks on both your faces that you don't want me to keep going. No, no, I'm, I don't, <laughs> I don't feel if I look fraught, if my expression is fraught, uh, my, my, uh, uh enthusiasm is is there certainly because this is something both really worried that i'm going to shout fox news or something (laughs) (laughs) i don't think i don't think you're going to go full on like uh uh rush limbaugh on us here alex jones just to me that's that's amazing that you could create something like that and i feel like we're witnessing it with the necronomicon now which we we totally realize is a fictional thing but that people clearly think is maybe real. There's like groups of people that don't understand its fictionality and that I worry that that group will just get larger and that in 500 years there will be a podcast or whatever they call them in the future (laughs) that a cochlear cast that's like discussing how real the Necronomicon is versus how fake it is. Yeah. Which seems like the oral end of the me. The other one, the granddaddy one that I wanted to mention, is called the Grand Grimoire, or the Red Dragon. 
It is from around 1520 AD. It was discovered in the tomb of King Solomon. So big deal right there already, right? It was found in 1750. It's written in biblical Hebrew, maybe Aramaic. Nobody can tell. <laughs> the four-part book. So four volumes. Any guesses on where it's hidden? Um, you mean geographically? Like who who owns this book right now? Um, Nicholas Cage. Think, think it's in Dan a library Brown. in uh, Alexandretta. No, no. Think Dan Brown. Dan Brown. Uh, da Vinci. The Pope. The dude. The Pope. The Vatican owns this okay. book. Okay. Uh, I win. The I Catholics. Win. Yeah. More yeah. bourbon. The Vatican Secret Archive is where this book is housed currently, supposed, supposedly. Oh. It was written by a man named Honorus of Thebes, but many people think that this is actually Pope Honorus, Honorus, mm. and that he got so bored with being Pope and being like such a great Pope that he started summoning demons just to turn them down to prove how pious and spiritual he was. <laughs> Are so you serious? Think, what's that? Are you serious? That That's part of the myth of this book, yes. That he was such a good pope and such a good man that he could, he could turn down any demon's offer. And so he figured out how to summon demons. The other option is that Honorus of Thebes is actually Lucifer himself. Oh. So it's either a really good pope or Lucifer. <laughs> uh, <laughs> He's well, a... Oh, go ahead. I was going to say Pope ain't easy. <laughs> I was going to say that Pope sounds like a pimp. And that was some sort of like weird, like tracking on the same synchronicity. Yeah. That, that Pope is awesome. I mean, to some degree or another, he is an interesting character to consider for this podcast. And he disrupts the, the common knowledge, right? Like he disrupts the status quo. Busting so this horns. book tells you how to summon demons. It goes through all of his methods for conjuring a demon up and how to contain them and avoid being taken over by them. Yep. It also has explicit instructions on how to summon Satan. Don't sneeze. And talk to him. What? You don't you don't sneeze. I mean, that provides like the 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 vacuum. Oh, God yep. bless you, right. Dude, don't say it. Don't say it. Hell, Satan. <laughs> and it may also help you with packs with the devil like it tells you how to make an actual deal for your soul so that you can get what you want out of it oh. watertight deals and <laughs> deals, supposedly deals, deals. it can't be burned you can't burn the book it's ah. impervious to fire oh that's cool that is right. a cool trait given that a book is made out of wood or right. like skins it should burn yeah some some type of uh uh, uh, pulp. Right. Mm. Books are notoriously flammable. Is I, see what what you, I see what you did there. Uh, so that's the Grand Grimoire or the Red Dragon. Yeah. So, are there so, any indications of where this book might be today? Yeah, I think we said the Vatican. Is that true? Right. It's the so the Vatican Library has supposedly the secret archives that none of us will ever get into if you follow certain conspiracy theories. And that inside of there, in addition to scrolls from the Library of Alexandria and probably evidence of Bigfoot, is this book, The Red ah. Dragon. 
Yeah, it's it must be a top secret because I've never heard of it. Right. We should probably subtweet Pope Francis and see if he has read through it, like giving it a glance. Anyway, those are some real grimoires, quote unquote real. Cool. Um, yeah, the other ones that I have jotted down are the uh, sixth and seventh book of Moses. Like the Moses? The Moses. Like the guy so, who wrote uh, Genesis through um, Deuteronomy? Right. Right. And Exodus. No, Well, and Exodus, of course. Yeah. Like, that goes without saying. Sure. He was there. So... Charlton Heston equals Moses, right? These are his sequels? Yeah. His Infinity War to to the other ones? (laughs) Yeah, the Infinity War to his Infinity Gauntlet. So the sixth and seventh books of Moses, what kind of stuff do we get in those? It seems like a lot of methods of summoning demons, a lot of methods of how you would subdue lesser gods, like those types of things, like... Talmudic magic is how we described it before we started recording. Uh, and we don't mean that to be offensive whatsoever. No, I mean, that's the, like the, the, the Kabbalah, right? right. Like <laughs> that is the root of a lot of this weird Western mysticism, like, esto- esoteric. Yeah. Like this mysticism, it comes down to like early old Testament shit. Yeah. For a group of people that didn't want to deal with Satan, they all seemed very interested in summoning demons. <laughs> right. But not really Satan himself, like the 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 helper demons. No, the, like Etrigan. They want to deal with him. <laughs> gone, gone, the form of man. Don't do you're gonna oh. turn into it. Okay, I don't want to do that. It just fascinates me that there was any interest in that. Like why did they want this? Well, I mean uh to me, and this is this is uh, several bourbons in, but uh, think about the Empire Strikes Back, and think about Luke's conversation, Luke Skywalker, that is not our Luke, uh, with Yoda, and think about the fact that that Yoda says, to, or Luke says to Yoda, "Is the dark side stronger?" And Yoda says, "No, it's faster. It's it's easier. It's more seductive. It's it's it's." Uh, you know, you don't have to do all of the research. Mm. You know, they they give you the. It's almost like the the Krebs notes, right? Like the the Cliff Notes version of how to get to enlightenment. Yeah, yeah. You take the shortcut, the the left hand path, the the straighter way. Um. And in doing so, you are circumventing a lot of the the negative effects like the side effects of doing this uh research of 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 learning this knowledge um and so to me it it really is you know you're getting to the same endpoint but maybe you're doing so without really reading the manual right if that makes sense yeah you're just no it does it's all a bit faustian right 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 which we'll probably say multiple times this <laughs> And so you can reach enlightenment in a, a more rapid way, at a more rapid pace, but it m- might not, like, you have to pay the price in some way. 
And the price might be thousands of years of meditation or the price might be your soul for 10 minutes reading uh, one of these esoteric texts. And so I think that in and of itself is the, the seductive nature of the grimoire. Yeah, it's the easy path. Yeah. And so we are going to, for the next several episodes of the Chromecast, devote some time discussing grimoires. And yeah. Luke, you have written down a list. Is this a grimoire now? Uh, this is at least like the, uh, the short stack. <laughs> An outline? From the, uh, like we went to the Dewey Decimal System, we flip, 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 flip the card catalog. We got to the point where it was like unexplained weird stuff. <laughs> and then we selected like a short list of like seven different texts. So these are the various, uh, grimoires that we're going to use as like the linchpins of our subsequent discussions. I think that's fair to say, right? Right. Yeah. So uh, we know where we're going to start, and that that starting point is the Necronomicon. That's like the the granddaddy of the of the grimoires, right? That's the one that's most recognizable within pop culture. It's of course like grounded within Lovecraft's writings. So we're gonna we're gonna start with that next week, or right. or or next recording. We're gonna start with that next recording. Right. Uh, and beyond that, we're going to cover another six. So we got the sweet, sweet seven here of these, these, <laughs> these grimoires <laughs> that we're going to It's talk a number about. of power, you said. I did. I, I mean, I'm a big fan of like three, seven, 13. Yeah. Just, I'm sold on them. Those numbers matter. Doesn't and- matter. <laughs> doesn't matter why they matter. It's that, it's that old wives like intuition and knowledge. Like yeah. you boil something down to three or seven. You're going to remember it. It just They're works. prime numbers, yeah. It works within your head. So we're going to do... Do you want to tackle the uh, pronunciation of this next word? I got it, man. Okay. I mean, well... Oh, yeah. So you're talking about Una Sprosh Lichen Colton? Is that yeah, right? That's good. Good enough? I mean, I'm not I'm not totally German, but I'm at least like a quarter or maybe half. <laughs> uh, so, or maybe half. So maybe half. I mean, I know my uh, grandma on my maternal side, she's a quarter. Or I mean, she's she's like full. So so I'm at least a That's quarter That's some German. esoteric math. <laughs> my math is, is solid at this point. So we got that one. That's, of course, like a... Lovecraftian? No, no, that's not even Lovecraftian. That's Howardian. That's Howardian. what we're talking about. Yeah, that's yeah. our boy. So, so there we're going to talk about at least a couple stories. So we've got that one. We have uh, the Book of Ibon, which is a Clark Ashton Smith joint. We have De Vermis Mysterious, which is like a Robert Block type book, but maybe that's going to get mentioned other places. Uh, returning again to the Robert E. Howard, we have the Book of Skelos, which is perhaps like the most widely like acknowledged grimoire within the Howardian text. I don't know. I think that's fair to say, like from I, what we've read. I would agree with that. Yeah. Like Skelos pops up a bunch. Uh, beyond that, we have uh, Colte de Lunes, which is a, a Derlithian slash Lovecraftian uh, text. The what the 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 cult of the ghoul the cult of the ghoul the cult of the ghoul uh that one's a big one uh and then also to round it out we have uh the king in yellow slash the yellow sign by robert w chambers which is kind of a fun 
type of <laughs> it's a romp it's a romp <laughs> it's a rompy play go, go and see it on broadway right uh and leave screaming yeah so we have like seven different various texts but i think the thing that we should we should emphasize here so next week we're gonna i keep saying week that's fine Next next time we record, we're going to discuss the Necron- the Necronomicon, uh, and that will be grounded within Lovecraft's The Hound, right? Mm-hmm. As mm-hmm. well as what other couple stories? Yep. So we're going to uh, sort of base our discussion around the story by Lovecraft, The Hound. And we'll also consider Lovecraft's other works that, that mention the, the Necronomicon, which are The Nameless City, The History of the Necronomicon, The Dunwich Horror, and maybe even The Call of Cthulhu. Oh, you went you went you went big time. Big. Yeah, yeah. I'm going big. So um, so required reading would be the the Hound. Yeah. And then we're we're go- we, us three, are gonna try to read the uh The Nameless City and The, the History. Uh, the history of. Yep. And then there's there's lots of other references, right? So the Necronomicon really is the big uh, grimoire in terms of weird tales stories, and so we're going to tackle the big one coming up next. Yeah, so we'll read that, and then I guess our story at this point is going to be to unveil. Or reveal or discuss or whatever. We're, we're basically going to figure out where we're going along this road as our meandering readings take us. So we've, we've outlined the seven texts. Uh, the Necronomicon, Una Sprachleichen, Colton, uh, The Book of Skelos, The Book of Ivan, De Vermis Mysterious, Cultus De Gules, and The King in Yellow. Those are going to be the seven cores so essentially, we're gonna have like seven core episodes, but we'll have like a a movie episode or two. We'll have perhaps another story centric episode or two, but the idea will be from grimoire to grimoire, we'll jump across using at least one, if not multiple, pulp stories to sort of like facilitate that jump and we will let you know from episode to episode what's next on the reading list that's right on so, the road of grimoires the, the road libris i wrote down uh the road to magic the road to magic i don't know if that's true it's the road to magic books anyway that's right i'm gonna take you on a magic carpet ride john <laughs> that's what william whatever stepping wolf uh you don't know so <laughs> where we'll go. So we've outlined our definition of grimoires. We've presented some examples in the pulps. And next week we'll talk about the Big Daddy, the Necronomicon, and we'll read The Hound by HP Lovecraft. And we'll also consider other Lovecraftian stories which mention the Necronomicon. Uh and so yeah. Where's our digital grimoire at? Joshua. Our digital grimoire can be found at thecromcast.blogspot.com and you could commune with the greater gods of the Chromecast at the Chromecast on Twitter. We're at Facebook.com slash the Chromecast on Facebook. And you can email us the at gmail.com. Finally, last ditch effort. Etch your 
esoteric shape. It might not be a hexagram. It not might not be a pentagram, but some sort of shape. Is it your elder sign? It's an elder sign. You will dial on your cell phone on speaker 859-429-CROM and you will leave us a voicemail and you'll say, hey guys, I hate the show. (laughs) Or, hey guys, I love the show. Or, hey guys, the show's okay. The show's okay. (laughs) Yeah, what John said. Either way, you'll call 859-429-CROM and leave a voicemail. And those are the ways you can get in touch with the Chromecast. Be verbal. Send us some audio. Tell us what's up. <laughs> what's up? For realsies. For realsies. Okay. And you'll find us a little bit further down the road <laughs> to the library. I'm gonna. I'm just gonna say the road to magic. You'll find us a little bit further down the road to magic.
Lucasaurus. Lucasaurus Rex. Lucasaurus Regina. No, Rexer, dude. 